So again, Romans uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, uh, or when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God. In my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of our Lord. Well, just as a reminder, uh, what Paul has been doing up to this point is he's been navigating through the role of the law in the Christian's life. And all of this matters, the role of the law in the Christian life, uh, because we happen to be the kind of people, even as Christians, who, as it were, love to sin. You know, if you're a mechanical engineer who builds trains, you have to talk about this you have to talk about the brakes on that train, that which makes the train slow down. Trains are big, trains are heavy, they're not easy to stop. And so if you're a mechanical engineer who builds trains, you have to consider the subject of brakes. Now, if you're a mechanical engineer who builds scooters, brakes aren't nearly as important. But for trains, brakes are important. The Bible tells us that our sinfulness is inescapable. I mean, because of Adam, all of us are lawbreakers who deserve judgment. Romans 5, 18 and 19. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The Bible could not be clearer. Romans 5, 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, what makes this difficult is that God doesn't save us by something that we do. A righteousness that we somehow are able to master. That's not why God saves us. God saves us by grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared innocent by 
his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's promise through and through rests on grace. We're saved by grace. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that large freight train. That freight train called sin clatters forward. Now, where I live, I live right by a train track. I hear uh, trains every day, and more importantly, every night. (laughs) But all of us sin every day. We all know the sound of trains well. So we ask questions like this, Romans 6.1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, the person who asks that knows that train quite well. And we ask questions like in Romans 6.15. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Not under law but under grace. That my sin might actually make God's grace grace increase. Do you hear that train rumbling through your own heart? We're exactly the kinds of people who ask questions that we find in Romans chapter 6. Now where we are in Romans right now is Paul's consideration then of the role of law. We say to ourselves, uh, I love to sin and conveniently I'm saved by grace anyway, so all law must be a joke, right? Law has no purpose for those who are saved by grace. That's exactly the attitude that Paul is addressing. Look at Romans 7 verse 1. What shall we say? That the law is sin. The sinner is going to continually look for ways to justify their sin. And they're going to ask questions like, uh, what shall we say? That the law is sin. And so... Uh, The predicament then is uh, one that we carry with us. The rolling of sin in our lives like a freight train makes us wonder about the role of the law. We begin to question the role of the law. We understand that we're saved by grace. And yet all the while that freight train moves and moves and moves. And so we obviously need to define uh, what Paul means by the word law. But for now, uh, we need to know that the real burden of our passage this morning, the real burden of our passage this morning is the law. And not just the law. Paul tells us very clearly his opinions about the law. The law is perfect and always serves God's purposes. And through this law, the Christian knows the work and presence of Jesus in their lives, both now and forever. That's what I think this passage is telling us. God's law, it's perfect, always serves God's purpose. And through this law, the Christian actually knows the work and presence of Jesus in their lives. And we begin in the first two verses of our passage, verses 12 and 13. Uh, The law is better than good. The law is holy. That's why I think it's so important that verse 12 be considered with this larger portion that goes through 25. Nobody should doubt where Paul stands on the matter. Paul says in verse 12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. By the way, as a curiosity, do you know what Paul has called holy in Romans up to this point here in chapter 7, verse 12. Would you be interested? Here's what Paul has called holy. He's, first of all, used the word very, very sparingly. 
He has described uh, Christians because they are loved by God as saints. And the base for that word is the, is the Greek word for uh, holy. So he's called Christians loved by God holy. Uh, he's called, obviously, the Spirit holy. Uh, and he is called a scripture, Romans 1, 2, holy. Saints, the Spirit, and scripture. Anything else? Not at this point. But he calls the law holy. And he's going to say again that the law is good. Verse 13, verse 16. The law's goodness is certainly attached to ownership in our passage. Look at verse 22. It's the law of God. And look at verse 14. He says that the law is spiritual, which I take to mean connected to the Holy Spirit. Paul's unequivocal. No doubt whatsoever. The holiness, righteousness, and goodness of the law carries all the way through this passage, even through, even though uh, there's some verses that are confusing. Paul says in verse 20, 25, uh, I, fi- I myself serve the law of God. It's hard to know what he means by that. But be that as it may, uh, the law of God is good, connected to God, connected to the Holy Spirit. It's righteous, it's holy. That's the theme that runs through this entire passage. And Romans 7.13 is important because uh, Paul describes something that this good good law has done already. Just like in Romans uh, 7, 7 through 11. So the passage that we looked at last week, just like that passage, we need to understand that verse 13 is a reference to Paul's conversion. Verse 13 is a reference to Paul's conversion. He asked the question, uh, did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? And look what he says. He says, by no means. Uh, Somehow the law was unable to kill Paul. But the law did show him what is the problem. He says there that the law showed him uh, sin. uh, That sin might be shown to be sin. The law told him about his failure uh, to keep the law. The law showed him that the law isn't flawed. The law showed him that the man is flawed. And then he goes on to say, again, we're just in 12 and 13. He goes on to say that not just the law did this, but the commandment did this. The commandment showed the man's sin problem to be a problem beyond measurement. Verses 12 and 13. And what does this mean? You know, Paul, spending the bulk of his life as a Uh, good Jew. He uh, understood that he was unable to keep the commandments, but he also understood that he was unable to keep his own uh, legal standards. Paul says earlier in Romans that uh, God by creation has uh, written the law on the hearts of every human being to serve to illustrate that every human being is not perfect. Isn't that curious that God has uh, somehow uh, by his uh, creative thumbprint marked upon every human being an awareness of right and wrong? Uh, Just think about this as a test case. If if you ask your uh, non-believing friends or family members, if you ask them if they are perfect, how many of them are going to say, yes, you bet, I'm perfect? Well, zero. None of them will. They know that there's uh, something wrong with them. It may be small, but they'll admit they're not perfect. 
And Paul knew that he was imperfect. He knew that he was unable to keep even his own standards. But it was through the commandment, through God's written law, all of this was confirmed in Paul's life. And as a Jew, Paul had a very high-tuned, scrupulous sense of law. But he he says in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. But Paul doesn't stay this way. Thanks be to God that Paul turned to rely upon the perfect righteousness of Christ rather than live as if he might one day satisfy God's law perfectly. He knew he couldn't satisfy even his own law perfectly. And so you see, Paul, well, he's not shy. God's law is perfect. God's law always serves his purposes. And in verses 12 through 13, God's law drove Paul to see his need for a perfect redeemer. That's what I believe is behind verses 12 and 13. But then when we hit 14, things change, don't they? And so in 14 through 24, we we need to ask the question sincerely, what then is the use of the law today as a Christian? Did you know that the next 11 verses, those verses that begin at verse 14, that these next 11 verses are some of the most contested verses in the Bible, even among theologians whom we think are wonderful and heroic? The difficulty is what to make of all of the instances of the word I in the passage. You have the Bible open before you. Begin at verse 14 and just scan down. Well, that letter I, it's just everywhere. And so this becomes a problem of grammar. By the way, I'm a lit major, so I know that most problems do start from grammar, but I feel like I have a leg up and use this as a point of boasting. There, I've said it. You've thought that about me for a while. When you look at this passage, you see an awful lot of first-person singular verbs. That is, these, these verbs that have a subject of, of I, first-person singular. And it's all over the place in this passage. Uh, an example of this very theme you can see in Romans 1, verse 6. Don't turn there, just listen. Um, uh, Romans 1, 6. Uh, Romans 1, 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. First-person singular. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's autobiographical. Paul is telling us that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And we relish in that passage. But the truth of the matter is that Paul uses the first person singular an awful lot in Romans. In fact, uh, Romans 1 verses 8 through 15, uh, he uses the first person singular verb 11 times. Uh, I thank my God for all of you. I mention you always in my prayers. I long to see you. I've often intended to come to you. You see what's happening in Romans chapter 1? Highly autobiographical. It really happens all over the letter. I I counted numerous examples of Paul using uh, verbs in the first first person singular sense. But we find that a lot in this passage and it's troubling. And to put the problem into perspective, in just 11 verses, those passages that we're concerned with now, there are 22 first person verbs. Isn't that remarkable we're we're looking at verses 14 through 24 22 first person verbs and not only this but the way that paul speaks here is well it's it's very challenging and look how he opens romans 7 14 for we know that the law is spiritual but i am under the flesh sold under sin what are we to do with that we have these first person verbs we have a lot of them 
They're all in the present tense. We don't need that. He's talking about something that seems to be happening right now, even as he's writing. And then none of these things seem, seem on the surface to be the kinds of things that someone like Paul ought to be saying. And so, you understand the challenge. It's right there. What do we make of this? Well, in the very early church, uh, in examples that we find from uh, AD 200 to AD 400, uh, many scholars said that verses 11 through 24 was about Paul, but Paul before he was a Christian. So uh, here, uh, for some reason, he is going back in time. It's present tense, and he's talked about his conversion in in the past. So right here, he's still talking about something in the past. And so that lasted all the way up until A.D. 400. And then in A.D. 400, uh, Augustine, his view changed. Augustine was a very important biblical scholar. And Augustine began to read this very passage about Paul's current life, autobiographically spoken by Paul. And so from 400 A.D. all the way to the Reformation, most scholars are reading these verses as Paul's present reality. By the way, did you know any of that? Very challenging passage. During the Protestant Reformation, uh, the fact that uh, this is about Paul's uh, present life uh, was uh, resoundingly, overwhelmingly uh, believed uh, during the uh, Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, in particular, was staunchly adamant that this very passage is a passage about Paul's present life. His life as both a sinner and a saint. And not only that, about the life of every Christian. Now, virtually all of the Reformers held this view. Virtually all of the Puritans held this view. Many, I think most Protestant scholars today hold this view. Certainly uh, those who are Reformed and Calvinistic. And uh, there's outliers, People who don't believe that this passage is about about Paul's present reality. There's always outliers, right? One of them is John Stott. John Stott says that Paul here is talking about a hypothetical Jewish person who is living under the law. That's what John Stott says. Martin Lloyd-Jones believes that Paul is here talking about uh, an unbeliever. uh, Augustine's early position and the position uh, that predominated prior to uh, 400 I don't know about you, but when men like Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones have a view that's different than my own, I become nervous. I think it's a good instinct. But in this case, uh, I agree with the bulk of Reformed scholars who say that this is Paul talking about his present life. These verses refer to a very candid autobiographical picture of Paul's own life, uh, living free from the spiritual bondage of sin, and yet still living in the fleshiness of life. It may be a particularly bad season of sanctification in his life, that may be, but it's still autobiographical. Paul is a man who knows that the first husband is dead. You remember that illustration at the beginning of Romans chapter 7 about uh, a married couple. Uh, Paul, uh, he knows very well that that, uh, the first husband is dead and that he's married to a better husband, that is Jesus. 
In the beginning of chapter 7, Paul, he understands that he's no longer married to the dominion of sin, to the dominion of the flesh, to the old man, to the old Adam. He knows that that's not his spouse any longer. That has been killed in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross who paid for all of his sins. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, the very next verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the old husband is dead, the law no longer binds Paul. The law continues to be holy, continues to be righteous, continues to be good. But it doesn't bind him to condemnation. Praise be to God that this is the life of every Christian who is married to a holy and righteous and good husband, Jesus Christ, who will never leave or forsake his precious bride. Even though... The freight train of sin pushes down the bride's tracks. Praise be to God that the saints of Jesus, his bride, will never be left alone, will never be forsaken, even though in this present age she struggles mightily with her sin. So what then is the use of the holy law today as a Christian person? I want to draw your attention to the book of Revelation. Uh, We often know very little about Revelation, but we certainly know that it begins with a series of letters. In John's uh, vision of Revelation, uh, he is instructed to write letters to seven churches. And one was to a church uh, called Laodicea, because it's in Laodicea. I want you to just listen very uh, carefully to a part of that letter. In that letter, uh, John is told by, uh, by Jesus to write... I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Remember, it's a letter to a church. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. What a cantankerous church. How would you like to deliver that letter? Oh, I didn't finish. Let me go on. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The word wretched is interesting to me. It occurs here and it occurs in our passage this morning. The problem that this church has is this church believes they need Nothing. They're fine. Look the other way, Jesus. I don't need you. Not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What do you think is going to help this church at Laodicea? I've just quoted to you from Revelation three fifteen through 17. What do you think is going to help the believers at Laodicea? <laughs> well... They don't realize that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It seems like that would be a good place to start. They don't realize. And if they only knew, if they only knew, if they only knew. It's almost like Paul read this letter. I mean, he didn't. I don't believe he did. The letter wasn't written yet. But it's almost like Paul read this letter. Uh, Why is the law of God holy and righteous and good? Uh, Why are the commandments of God holy? Because, my brother and sister, I love you, but you're an awful lot like me. Even though you're saved by grace, 
married to a perfect husband, eternally secure, there are times in your life, and there are times in my life, when you and I do not realize that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There are times in our life when we believe we need nothing. I know that about you. Even as you profess faith in Jesus, the same Jesus whom I profess faith in, there are times when we think that we need nothing. There are times when we do not see our sin as a charging train, but more like a coasting scooter. You're a little too confident, a little too naive, and I'm right there with you. Both you and I have a tendency to forget that in this life, our flesh remains uh, tainted with sin and that we need God's grace and mercy not just to convert us. We need God's grace and mercy to sustain us each and every day, each and every second of this present age. Now, the law is good and holy. And when we hear Paul speak autobiographically in this chapter, that's what needs to be going in the back of our minds. The law is good and holy. Now, keeping that in mind, there are some striking things that we find in this passage. Two things I think are very, very striking. One thing that ought not be striking at all for a mature Christian. It's striking for Paul to say in verse 18 that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. It's hard to, to read that. I mean, we do know that one day our bodies will be made better, will be glorified, and sin will no longer have any pull on our flesh as it does now. Uh, But it just seems almost imaginable that Paul could then say in verse 14, as he does, that he is sold under sin. I get the power of the flesh, Paul. Verse, Verse 18, I'm with you. Nothing good dwells in me. That's a stretch. But verse 14, sold under sin? strong language. This, in fact, verse 14, is the single most challenging verse of the entire passage. Mark it in your Bibles. Over the history of the church, this is the single most challenging uh, verse in this passage. But I side with Calvin. From the perspective uh, of of our flesh, what Paul is saying in verse 14 uh, makes a bit more sense. From the perspective of flesh, we are under sin to such a degree that even as Christians, and here I'll quote Calvin, we are so given up to sin that we can do willingly nothing but sin. For the corruption which bears rule within us drives us onward. That's Calvin. But that's really the bulk of the Protestant reformers, that when they come to this passage, they say that we are so given up to sin that we can uh, willingly uh, do nothing but sin. If there's any good that we can generate in, their lo- in our lives, if there is any fruit that we are able to bear forth in our lives, that fruit cannot come from the flesh. It has to come from elsewhere. Have you thought about that, Christian, in those highs of your sanctification? If there is any good in your life as a Christian, any fruit in your life, it cannot come from the flesh. It cannot come from your intentions. It cannot come from your works or efforts. It actually comes from your union with Jesus Christ. This is why Paul calls Christian fruit in Romans 7, 4, fruit for God. It's fruit that's come of the nature of God. Having been united to Jesus Christ as Christians, we are able by God's grace to produce fruit. Flesh 
will never do it. Verse 14 is challenging. But from the perspective of our flesh, what Paul is saying is that it is impossible for us by our own strength through our flesh to will that which is good and pleasing to God. And it's also striking. This is the second thing that's striking. It's also striking for Paul to speak in such a way that he seems almost uh, bifurcated, that Paul's inner life is uh, separated. He's separated from himself. Uh, He says twice, 17 and 20, that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What an odd way for a Christian to speak. And he says in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. And he says in verse 23 that I see in my members or I see in my behaviors or my actions another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And this is, this is a striking way to speak about his life, almost as if he is disconnected from it, viewing it from afar. But is he not only saying that he uh, often does exactly uh, uh, that which he shouldn't do? Isn't that really what he's saying? That he often does exactly that which he doesn't, which he shouldn't do. Uh, In some way or fashion, the knower in Paul's life and the doer in Paul's life, they seem to be at odds. And he understands himself as these almost two separate entities. That's striking language, perhaps more striking uh, than we would put it, uh, even those who have been Christians for a long time. So there's two things that are striking, uh, that, he, that he could talk about his flesh in such a way uh, that uh, he is sold under sin, and that he could uh, talk about himself in such a way that he's almost uh, separated and watching things happen in his life. Those things are challenging to be sure. But there's something that that, that really uh, goes above and beyond all of those things that are striking because there's one thing that is not striking at all, makes perfect sense to someone only because they are a Christian. And here it is. This passage, it's almost like staring into the headlights of a quickly approaching freight train. This passage is almost too familiar. I can imagine it too well. I can imagine it so well that I'm not sure I want to talk to you anymore. Verse 19, Paul says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. I mean, obviously, as 18 says, uh, verse 18, there are times in Paul's life where he has the desire to do that which is right. But he says in verse, verse 18, not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. 19. There are times when I desire to do what is right, but I have not the ability to carry it out. Verse 18. Now, Christian, you do not have to answer aloud. It would be very awkward and almost Pentecostal if you did. But to yourself... Doesn't this make an awful lot of sense? Doesn't it make an awful lot of sense? What Christian man or woman does not see this? If you're here uh, and you don't see this, that there are times where you want to do this, but you do uh, something else. There are times where you catch yourself confessing the same sin uh, over and over again. Uh, there, are, there are times where you really feel as though you just lack the ability to carry out that, that which is exactly what you desire to do. If there's anyone here this morning uh, for whom that is an absolutely, utterly foreign experience... 
I don't know on what basis you belong in this place. I don't understand you. To profess faith in Jesus and to not feel this in your life. That's what's odd. And it's especially odd as I think about the nature of the church. That that the church is a place for, for who? The church is a place for imperfect people to love each other. For imperfect people to come together in a life of grace. As showing forth the grace that they themselves have received. There's a great deal of need for grace in the church. The church is a place for imperfect sinners to come to consider others more significant than self. The church is a place for us to come to confess our sins, but to also be uh, admonished for our sin. The church is a place for us to come together to help one another grow in holiness. The church is a place for us to come together to uh, serve one another and to, as best we can, by God's grace, as imperfectly as we are, to display to the entire world Christ's great love for us. Uh, The church is a place for us to come together in exile and to hug one another and to be next to one another and to wait patiently. For what? Our Jesus will return. And we hold each other and we wait patiently for the return of our loving, our loving Savior. To that day when flesh will no longer call the shots in our lives, when the body of death is finally done away with, which Paul alludes to in verse 24. Oh, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Christian, this is you. And this is me. Now, I said uh, earlier that the driving thrust of this passage is about what? It's about the law. It's not about the pull of the flesh on our lives. It's not even about sin. It's about the law. And God's law is perfect and always serves his purposes. What does the law do to Paul? Well, he tells us. Everything that he has just told us, everything that we have read in this passage, Paul has told us because of the law. Isn't that wonderful? Everything Paul's told us, he's told us because of the powerful operation of the law in his life. God's written commandments have done this. God's written commandments have informed him, informed him of who he is. God's holy scripture has told him who he is. The commandments have told him about the character of his perfect God. And the commandments have told him about the obedience of his perfect husband. The commandments have told him how pitiful he is, how needy he is, how afflicted or how wretched he is. The law is good and righteous and holy. Now, all of that is painful, I'll admit. But the law is good and righteous and holy. And to put this into perspective, uh, I cannot tell you how wretched you are. And that sounds like I've just insulted you, and I didn't mean to insult you. You can't tell me how wretched I am. Listen to what I mean. You know, I might think that you're wretched for any number of reasons. For instance, I really like cars, and you might like all of the wrong cars. I find that wretched. I'm going to do that over and over again. I cannot tell you how wretched you are. Our elders and our deacons cannot tell you how wretched you are either. Your church and your denomination cannot do this. Your history, your heritage, the expectations that your family places upon you cannot tell you how wretched you are. And... You cannot tell yourself how wretched you are. You don't have the permission of Paul to shame yourself into a state of wretchedness. No. 
So you see, the only afflicting power is that which comes from the word of God. Holy Scripture does have that authority. Holy Scripture applied honestly and sincerely to your behavior, to your speech, to your thoughts. That's the authority to drive you to a sense of your own need for God's mercy. God's law is holy and righteous and good. Do you see what Paul is doing? Even as he autobiographically shares what's happening in his own daily life, you see what he's doing? He's preparing us for a good view of Christian sanctification. What's the use of the holy law today? The law reminds each of us in Christ Jesus that we are never to live as if we are ununited from him. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This is where I'm concluding. I'm I'm parking here in verse 25. We know that a Christian never has the right to boast about their holiness, right? As Christians, we don't have the right to boast about our holiness. What, What do we know about our holiness? It's God at work in us that produces fruit in our lives. It's God at work in us. And we also know that a Christian never has the right to define that which is pleasing to God. Only Holy Scripture working through the Holy Spirit can do that. Both of these realities, the fact that we can't boast about our own holiness and the fact that we cannot define what is pleasing to God, Paul's going to cover both of those subjects. But we also need to hear this. A Christian never has the right to live as if their every breath does not depend upon their husband, Jesus Christ. You do not have that right to live as if you get to take some breaths and your holy husband gets to take others. You do not have the right to live as if you do not need your husband. There is never a time in the Christian's life in which it is appropriate uh, to uh, man your own train, drive your own train, as it were. We are dependent upon our Jesus, upon our husband for everything. The holiness of God demands this. When we feel that we are in a very high point of our sanctification, it's so easy for us to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ at a high point in your sanctification. But look what Paul is doing. He's doing something different, isn't he? It's not a high point of sanctification that he is training us to sing out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Even as verse uh, 25 says, uh, it's actually a low point of sanctification, and perhaps it's especially a low point in your sanctification in which you are to cry out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's the resoundant noise of verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. When your sanctification is going well, and especially when your sanctification is going poorly. Now, here's where I want to conclude. There is no way that Paul would understand himself as wretched did he not first view the law as being good and righteous and holy. Do you hear that? The passage is about the law. We may not like the fact that Paul calls himself wretched. We may be uh, discomforted by that language as we apply it to ourselves. But Paul sees that because the law is good and righteous and holy. Now, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that we are not left there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this is a morning in which we come together to uh, participate at the Lord's table. Uh, What excellent timing you have 
thank you that this would be a passage that we look at as we then come to partake of the perfect work of someone else. (laughs) Heavenly Father, this meal was made for sinners. We thank you that through this meal we can be reminded of our need for God's, for your grace, not just in converting us, but each and every day. We thank you, Jesus, for your perfect obedience. We thank you, God, that you would impute that obedience to us, to the praise of our glorious Savior. Amen.